Am I on? There we are. You ready? We'll try this again. A man with a sunken chest hangs his head as he hands his items to the checkout clerk. Smiling, she scans his dozen roses, box of chocolates, and knowingly she meets his sheepish, sheepish grin. What did you do this time? He says, I don't know, but I figured I'd better bring a peace offering. The peace offering or the fellowship offering is perhaps the most misunderstood of the five major sacrifices that introduce us to the book of Leviticus. Oftentimes, it's appropriated in our culture in the way we just saw, right? You, you have a, a beef with somebody and so you, you buy them a Coke or something, you know, you make a peace offering. You want to set everything at ease. But that's not how the fellowship offering works in the book of Leviticus. In fact, it's pretty opposite of that. See, the, the peace offering or the fellowship offering is given to God not to create the peace, but because the peace already exists. There is a relationship there. The fellowship offering is an offering that's all about celebrating the peace and the relationship that exists between the worshiper and God. Indeed, it, it is predicated on peace being made with God prior. It's, it's predicated on sin being atoned for so that sinful man can enter into the presence of holy God. But it's all about celebrating the peace that God has created between himself and his people. And what, what I want us to see from the fellowship offering this morning is that God is for our joy, that he wants us to be seriously joyful together with him. And you can see your main idea there is that God wants his people to celebrate their friendship with him and the exhortation goes with that when we just want to together celebrate Jesus who through his death has made us his friends has brought us into fellowship with him and so we'll, we'll do the same pattern as we have the first two weeks we'll talk about the procedure then this one we have some occasions we'll talk about the occasions of the fellowship offering and then we'll consider its purpose together let's pray and then we'll get into the text Father, we ask that you would quiet our busy minds. Help us to hear what you would say to us through your word. We ask that you would soften our hard hearts so that we might be changed by your word. We pray that you would open our ears so that we would not hear without hearing, but that we would listen and consequently come to know you more. Lord, this time is yours. It's all yours. We give this time specifically to hearing what you have said to us in the book of Leviticus about the fellowship offering. 
Thank you for this word. Help us to hear well. Help me to preach a better sermon than I've prepared. Send your spirit to fill us and to fill this place even now. This we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. The book of Leviticus is arranged intentionally. Someone took the time to think about how they were going to order these sacrifices. And so we saw in week one what was probably one of the most important sacrifices, the burnt offering, which was given generally as an atonement for sin, for the sin of the worshiper who would bring it. Remember the worshiper would lay their hand on the animal and identify with the animal so that the animal would be as the worshiper before a holy God. The animal would ultimately be slaughtered, its blood splattered against the altar, and then entirely consumed. What Leviticus is doing in this opening chapter and throughout is answering this big question. How can a holy God dwell with a sinful people? And the answer Leviticus gives us is the sacrificial system, which is primarily founded upon atonement for sin. Remember this word atonement comes from three English words, at, one, mint, and it refers to the reconciling of two estranged parties. And that's, that's really the crux of the issue is that even though God has drawn his people out of Egypt so that they might draw near to him in relationship as sons and daughters, they still persist in sinfulness as evidenced by their worship of the golden calf in Exodus 32. They're still, even though they're his people, tainted by sin. And so that this, this question is, kind of hangs over the whole Old Testament. How, how can sinful man be in relationship with the perfectly good, perfectly loving, perfectly holy God? And the answer is God's graciousness. God, because he is holy, because he is entirely good, deals with evil. That's what sin is, it's evil. And his wrath towards evil is his right response to it. So the question goes, well, how, how then can he, how can he not pour his wrath out on a sinful and evil people? And the answer is atonement, a substitute. And that's what we see come to the fore in chapter 1 of Leviticus. The people identify with this substitutionary animal that goes up onto the altar and takes the wrath of God for their sin in their place. Remember, the burnt offering is offered generally for all the people at the beginning of every day, at the end of every day. And then, as it would be needed throughout the year by each individual, when they had broken the law in some significant way, they would, they would come, according to their conscience, and offer it for sin generally, a, a bull or a sheep or a bird, and they would watch it be slaughtered before them. They would actually participate in the slaughtering of the animal. They would watch the blood on the side of the altars. They would watch the whole thing in the burnt offering be consumed by the fire. They would watch the smoke billow up from the altar day after day, week after week, month after month, and they would be reminded, God is holy. I am a sinner. I need a substitute. And they would be reminded, God 
has provided one. Now we know as Christians, as Hebrews 10.4 tells us, that the blood of bulls cannot take away sins. We know that the whole sacrificial system, all of the blood, all of the smoke, all of the sacrifice, was designed to point us to Jesus Christ. The one who is truly qualified to be man's substitute. The one who can live a perfect life in my place, in your place. The one who can die the death that you and I deserve to die under the wrath of God. Jesus is the one who was qualified, blemishless, perfect to die for the sins of all who would repent and put their faith in him. And we know that Jesus was raised from the dead, proving that his sacrifice satisfied the wrath of God. And we know that he's going to return to make everything sad untrue and deal with evil once and for all. The burnt offering teaches us that God's holiness consumes that which is evil. That God, because he's good, requires a sacrifice for sin. Because God is gracious, he has given to the Israelites this sacrificial system that allows them to enter into his presence, to draw near to him. In chapter 2, we see the grain offering, which we, see, which we said says something akin to, thank you, God, for saving me. Thank you, I belong to you. Remember that Hebrew word minah for grain offering is actually how one would pay homage to a king. And so you would bring gifts to a king to say, I am your vassal, you are my king, you are my Lord, I'm dedicated to you, I worship you, I honor you. That's what they were doing here. And we, since it's close to Christmas, we talked about how uh, Jesus is also brought gifts by the wise men when he's a baby. And what they're doing is not just giving him gifts, but they're honoring him as king. And so the Israelites are, are seeing, you can see the process here, sin is atoned for. They are consecrated and dedicated to the Lord. They're in relationship with him. And now in chapter 3, with the fellowship offering, what's happening is we're going to enjoy the relationship with God. We're celebrating the relationship we have. We're celebrating the friendship we have with God. And I think sometimes we, we just jump to chapter 3 and we skip over the burnt offering and the grain offering. I can't tell you how many times I hear people say something akin to, well, we're all children of God. And that's certainly true in, in the sense that God has made every single person in his image, worthy of dignity, honor, and respect. But it's not true in the relational sense. Ephesians 2 tells us that we are not naturally at peace with God, that naturally we are at war with God. Ephesians 2 says that we are not children of God, but children of wrath, disciples of Satan. The Romans 5.10 tells us that we were God's enemies. The good news is, is that when we come to Christ and repent of our sin and put our faith in him, the, the rest of Romans 5.10 becomes true, right? If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? That's good news. 
But we have to deal with the bad news first. We have to recognize that we do not start out in this life neutral. The default position of humanity is not at peace with God. It's at war with God. We are sinners. We sin. We need a Savior. Before we can have fellowship with God, we need to to consider what it costs for God to call you and me friend. It costs the life of Jesus Christ. Let's take a look at this fellowship offering, the first five verses in chapter 3. If his offering is a fellowship sacrifice, and he is presenting an animal from the herd, whether male or female, he is to present one without blemish before the Lord. He is to lay his hand on the head of his offering and slaughter it at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Then Aaron's sons, the priests, will splash the blood on all sides of the altar. He will present part of the fellowship sacrifice as a fire offering to the Lord, the fat surrounding the entrails, all the fat that is on the entrails, and the two kidneys with the fat on them at the loins. He will also remove the fatty lobe of liver with the kidneys. Aaron's sons will burn it on the altar along with the burnt offering that is on the burning wood, a fire offering, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And so you can see there in verse 5, quite literally, the fellowship offering is alongside, or think word for word in the Hebrew, on top of the burnt offering. Atonement comes before fellowship. There's a lot of things that this offering has in common with the burnt offering. We see that like the burnt offering, an animal can come from the herd. That Like the burnt offering, it has to be blemishless. Like the burnt offering, the worshiper lays his hand on the sacrifice and identifies with it. And like the burnt offering, the altar is to be splashed with blood. There are some differences though, and we'll point those out after we read the rest of the chapter together. Verse 6. If his offering as a fellowship sacrifice to the Lord is from the flock... He is to present a male or a female without blemish. If he is presenting a lamb for his offering, he is to present it before the Lord. He must lay his hand on the head of his offering, then slaughter it before the tent of meeting. Aaron's sons will splatter its blood on all the sides of the altar. He will then present part of the fellowship sacrifice as a fire offering to the Lord, consisting of its fat and the entire fat tail, which he is to remove close to the backbone. He will also remove the fat surrounding the entrails, all the fat on the entrails, the two kidneys with the fat on them at the loins, and the fatty lobe of liver above the kidneys. Then the priest will burn the food on the altar as a fire offering to the Lord. If his offering is a goat, he is to present it before the Lord. He must lay his hand on its head and slaughter it before the tent of meeting. Aaron's sons will splatter its blood on all the sides of the altar. He will present part of his offering as a fire offering to the Lord the fat surrounding the entrails, all the fat that is on the entrails, and the two kidneys with the fat on them at the loins. He will also remove the fatty lobe of liver with the kidneys. Then the priest will burn the food on the altar as a fire offering for a pleasing aroma. All fat belongs to the Lord. This is a permanent statute throughout your generations. Wherever you live, you must not eat any fat or any blood. You hungry yet? 
So this offering, that some of the different things, this one can be male or female, right? And I don't really know why this is. Uh, some of the best guesses from commentators is that somehow the, the female animals might have been perceived as less valuable, and that's to show that this sacrifice, while important, is not vital, right? Which is also seen, this is a, a voluntary sacrifice. It's not one that you are, uh, have to bring uh, because it's commanded. It's one that you bring because you want to. It's voluntary. There are some occasions in Israel's uh, calendar year that will call for it. So like the installation of priests, a fellowship offering is to be offered. I think it's the, at the festival of the first fruits it's to be offered. So there are times when it's to be offered, but typically it's just, it's just when you want to, you can bring this particular sacrifice. So that's one difference. The other difference that, that probably stood out to you is you probably heard the word fat like a bunch of times, right? That this fat, along with its fatty tail and the fat on the liver, liver and the fat on the lobe, like it's all going to the Lord. And if you're like me, um, you don't particularly like fat. Right? If I get a piece of meat, I'm going to cut all the fat off of it because it repulses me. I'm not, not a fan. But in Israel, fat was seen as a delicacy. This is especially true because their animals would have been lean. Right? They're not like ours are today, you know, grass-fed, 100% Angus beef. and just great. These are leaner animals. There wouldn't be as much fat. And so the fat part was considered the best part. Maybe like uh, the filet mignon of today. And so what's happening is God is saying, when you offer the fellowship offering, the best parts are mine. Best parts are mine. And again, we'll have this question brought to us from Leviticus. Am I giving God my best? Or do I give him what is left over? But then we should be asking another question. Because in the burnt offering, we see God consumes the whole animal. It's all burned up in the fire. In the fellowship offering... We see a memorial portion put on the altar, and then the priest gets to eat the rest of that. In the fellowship offering, though, what makes it so unique is that not only do the priests get to eat, not only is a portion representatively given to the Lord, God doesn't eat, he tells us this in Psalm 50, but it's to, to demonstrate this idea that he is eating with his people, right? So God gets a portion on the altar, the priest gets a portion, and the worshipers get to eat. Everything that is not the fat and the thing that is described in chapter 3, the worshipers get to eat, along with the priest. That's made more evident to us in a second, and we'll get there. But that's incredible. And I think for us, we don't necessarily recognize or appreciate times of feasting so much in our culture, just because we feast all the time. Like if I'm hungry and I'm craving something, like it's at my door, I can order it or I can go get it really quickly. But maybe you would, you would think when you would offer a fellowship offering, it might be something tantamount to your Thanksgiving celebrations or at Christmas. There's, there's food and there's family and there's friends and there is celebrating. I mean, that is, is what's going to happen with the fellowship offering. It's this idea Remember that the tabernacle or the tent of meeting represents kind of God's earthly palace. This is the connection point between heaven and earth. 
And so the, the closer you get to the tabernacle, the closer you get to the tent, the closer you're getting to this specific manifestation of God's presence in Israel. Right? And if you, if you get too close and you're unholy, you die. And so the idea here is that God is inviting his people to a festival at his house. That's kind of the idea. That God has set a table before his people and he is taking the kingly portions and he is giving the rest of the food, the rest of the feast to his people so they, they might celebrate. I mean, this is really cool. Especially if you're an Israelite and you don't get to eat meat every day and your, your diet consists primarily of vegetables. Imagine how awful that would be. I mean, they're eating vegetables and you're going get to, get to, to get to have some steak with the Lord your God. We have some more occasions, the occasions that are um, designated for the fellowship offering listed for us in chapter 7. If you want to turn there. Chapter 7 and starting in verse 11, we're given some more details about the fellowship offering. Now this is the law of the fellowship sacrifice that someone may present to the Lord. If he presents it for thanksgiving, the word here is broader than just thanksgiving. It just means to respond to God with worship. I prefer the word praise there, but uh, translators see us be like thanksgiving, so we're going to go with both. Uh, thanksgiving or praise, in addition to the thanksgiving sacrifice or praise sacrifice, he is to present unleavened cakes mixed with olive oil, unleavened wafers coated with oil, and well-kneaded cakes of fine flour mixed with oil. He is to present as his offering cakes of leavened bread with his thanksgiving sacrifice for fellowship. Quick note, remember last week some of you are going, leaven in some of the bread? That's a no-no, right? In the grain offering, there's not no leaven, no honey can go on that altar where the fire is. And so what we're seeing here is actually part of the grain offering, the part that's unleavened, well, there'll be a memorial portion taken from that and put on the altar as a grain offering alongside the fellowship sacrifice. But the rest of this bread is being made for the party. It's being made for the fellowship offering, for the priests and the worshiper to eat. I mean, what, what great meal doesn't have great bread? That's, God is saying, he's making provision. He's like, you're going to eat meat and you're going to eat bread before me. It is a celebration. He is to present his offering of cakes of leavened bread with his thanksgiving sacrifice of fellowship. From the cakes, he is to present one portion of each offering as a contribution to the Lord. It will belong to the priest who splatters the blood of the fellowship offering. It is his. The meat of his thanksgiving sacrifice or fellowship must be eaten on the day he offers it. He may not leave any of it until morning. And so the first circumstance in which we see somebody offering the fellowship offering is for thanksgiving or praise. They're excited about what God has done. Just some unasked for kindness of God most likely. And so you can kind of picture, if you would, a, a guy and his family kind of on their way to the, the temple ready to offer this praise or thanksgiving fellowship offering, probably smiling ear to ear. People going, well, what, what, are, you, what are you doing? I'm, I'm offering the praise offering of fellowship. Would you like to join us? We're going to eat. God has been so good to us. 
C.S. Lewis says that praise is the culmination of joy. It's that idea that when you enjoy something and it's really, really good, you can't help but tell somebody about it. Whether it's an excellent movie or, or music, or sporting event, you've got to tell somebody, did you see that? Have you heard this? And that's what's going on here. The, the praise of the people, they're, they're going and they are delighting in God. They're offering this, this fellowship offering and saying, God, you have done something amazing. You have made us your people. You have brought us, a sinful people, into relationship with you, the holy God. This is incredible. I think what we can learn is that an attitude of praise is one that should mark us as Christians. We should constantly, constantly be praising God for his goodnesses and his kindnesses to us. They are myriad love how Hebrews talks about this. In Hebrews 13, verses 15 and 16. Therefore, through Jesus, let us continually offer up to God a sacrifice of praise that is the fruit of lips that confess his name. Don't neglect to do what is good and to share, for God is pleased with such sacrifices. We're to be a people that are praising God and having that, that joy and that praise kind of spill out of us and onto others. It would be so good for us to be a church that testifies to one another about what God is doing. When we see one another that, that before we can ask each other how we're doing spiritually or what God has been teaching us lately, that, that we're blurting out, God, this week I was, I was reading in the book of Leviticus of all places and I just saw this amazing thing about God just dwelling on his holiness. It's amazing that he loves us. Or, or this week I, I had a hard time, I was having a really tough week and, and God sent so-and-so to my house with a meal. It was so encouraging. I want to be a people that are, are praising God and praising him to one another, reminding each other, about how good our God is. And also the second part of Hebrews is don't neglect to share what is good. Maybe that draws us back to the communal shape of the fellowship sacrifice. If you, you notice there in verse 15, they're not allowed to leave any of this food. They may not leave it until morning. So no doggy bags, no, no takeouts. You can't like take it home and put it in the refrigerator and eat it three, four days later. God says, you have to eat all of this when you offer it, same day. It's all got to be gone. None of it can last until morning. I think this would have served as an impetus to invite other people. Not just your family and your friends, but to be very generous with who would come to this meal. An opportunity to praise God together with others. To eat with him and before him. Let's look at the second, second two occasions for the fellowship offering. Verse 16. If the sacrifice he offers is a vow or a free will offering, it is to be eaten on the day he presents his sacrifice. And what is left over may be eaten on the next day. And so these two sacrifices are somehow less significant than the first one. I don't know how. But you get two days to eat this one. 
and then you can't eat it on the third day. But what remains, verse 17, what remains of the sacrificial meat by the third day must be burned. So if you don't eat it, if there's any leftover after two days with these two particular kinds of fellowship offerings, you got to burn it up. Can't be eaten. And so let's start with the vow offering. I think the best example we have of the vow offering in Scripture is with Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 1. It's one of my favorite stories in Scripture. You have this godly man named Elkanah, and he goes up to the temple at Shiloh yearly to offer a fellowship sacrifice. So he goes up, he sacrifices, and then he shares the meat and the food with his family. They all eat and have a really good time. But then we're led to kind of the, the problem in 1 Samuel chapter 1. Is he has his wife Hannah, whose name means grace or favor, and she is barren. She can't have any children. And so he has taken a second wife named Peninnah, I think is how you pronounce it. It's not very kind. It doesn't just roll off the tongue, Peninnah. But because Peninnah, and she has given him lots of children. And what she does when they go up to this festival is she teases Hannah about her barrenness to the extent that Hannah will not eat her portion of the fellowship offering. And 1 Samuel 1 brings us into the story and she comes before the Lord and she is, is weeping and praying. And this is what we read in verses 10 and 11 of 1 Samuel chapter 1. Deeply hurt, Hannah prayed to the Lord and wept with many tears. Making a vow, she pleaded, Lord of armies, Lord of hosts, if you will take notice of your servant's affliction, remember and not forget me and give your servant a son, I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and his hair shall never be cut. Eli, the priest at the time, sees Hannah kind of weeping and moving her, her mouth, praying silently. He concludes she's drunk and he's like, hey, uh, lay off the strong drink, lady. This is not the place for that. She tells him that she's actually, I'm praying. I'm praying. And he responds, I think, well, I hope that God grants your request. And Hannah gets happy. She goes and eats her fellowship offering. And then we read that she becomes pregnant. She gives birth to Samuel. And then after she has weaned him, we read in verse 24 of chapter 1, when she had weaned him, she took him with her to Shiloh where the tabernacle is, as well as a three-year-old bull or three bulls. The, the text is um, ambiguous there. Half a bushel of flour and a clay jar of wine. Though the boy was still young, she took him to the Lord's house at Shiloh. Then they slaughtered the bull and brought the boy to Eli. Please, my Lord, she said, as surely as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this boy. And since the Lord gave me what I asked for him for, I now give the boy to the Lord. For as long as he lives, he is given to the Lord. And they worshiped the Lord there. And so you, you can see Hannah makes this vow. She's praying to God. She says, God, if you would grant me a child, I would give him to you. And God grants her requests. And she comes after she's weaned the boy and she offers this grand fellowship offering. It's, it's a huge offering either way you read the text. But if it's three bulls, it's really, really lavish. She's like, God, I am worshiping you. I am praising you. I can't believe that you have called me your friend, that you have looked on me with kindness and given me this son. And now I return him to you. 
Now, to some of us, this idea of vowing seems a little foreign. Who vows anymore? But it's not that foreign if you think about it. If you have repented of your sins and trusted in Christ, then you've been baptized. And, and what you're doing when you are being baptized is you are vowing to submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ and to obey all that he has commanded you. Or uh, when you join here as a, a member of our church, we have a membership covenant where we, we vow to do these things together. Or maybe what, what most of us think of when we think of vows is marriage. Right? You stand and you, you make vows to one another. It's not that odd. I do think oftentimes, in our culture anyway, we make promises or vows kind of easily, without much thought or much sincerity. Their culture is just so different. These were really serious things. You came and you, you brought sacrifice in connection with a vow. I wonder if we would take our own promises and vows more seriously if we had to offer sacrifices. I hope that you take your wedding vows seriously. But, but how much more serious would you take them if you had to slaughter a bull at the ceremony? Right? This is a serious thing. And it's seriously joyful. You see, Hannah is celebrating what God has done. Likewise, when we make vows, we celebrate. Right At a baptism, we're usually going to have some food afterwards and celebrate. When you get married, there's always dancing and food and drink and long nights and everybody is celebrating these vows. And then if you stay married for a long period of time, we have another party for you, celebrating the vows that you made it like 50 years. It's incredible. We celebrate vows. This is not completely foreign to us. We understand the idea of celebrating the making of and keeping of vows. The third occasion for the fellowship offering calls it a free will offering. And it's just what it sounds like. This is when you bring the fellowship offering just because. Maybe you've seen the just because section in the cards at like Hallmark store. And those are cards that you give to people because there's not really an occasion to give a card, but you want to send them a card, right? And so this is, you, you, go, you know what? I just feel like having a celebration. I'm going to gather up my family and my friends, and I'm going to go before the Lord of the fellowship offering and offer it because he's worthy, because he's good. So that's, that's the third occasion. All of these help to show us the relational aspect of the fellowship offering. Once more, we are confronted with what's, what's going on, what's being symbolized, is that God's people are eating a meal together with God in God's presence. I mean, again, even the priests get to eat. We see more of their portions down in verse 31. The priest is to burn the fat on the altar, but the breast belongs to Aaron and his sons. You are to give the right thigh to the priest as a contribution from your fellowship sacrifices. Everybody is eating. Eating is an indication of relationship. You don't typically eat with people that you don't like. I mean, even there's always kind of this relational element under it. 
I mean, even if you go on a date with somebody, right? You're, you're not, maybe you don't like them, maybe, I don't know you, but the idea is that you would hope that you would like one another. Eating, it represents relationship. And in this particular case, it's a celebration of a relationship. I love God in Deuteronomy 12, verse 7, and speaking about this particular offering says, you will eat in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice with your household in everything because the Lord your God has blessed you. I love that. And so we kind of have this, this picture of God. He, he's much more complex than we often like to think of him. That, that it opens by showing us how holy God is. How seriously we need to take him. That we can't just waltz into his presence. And then we see that he purchases for us friendship with himself. And then invites us into his joy. And so we're not to come into God's presence casually or cavalierly, but soberly, fearing our God appropriately. And at the same time, we are to draw near to him, not with a crestfallenness, but with an unmitigated joy, a true happiness. Makes me think of uh, Romans 6.23. Right? The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. We come to him soberly and joyfully, knowing what it costs for him to be in relationship with us. Don't miss the communal nature of the fellowship offering. It's that we are in fellowship with God and with one another, and that's what's being celebrated. God intends for us to enjoy fellowship with him and one another. He intends for us to share our lives together as his people. And that's one of the ways we do that as a church is by gathering weekly. We gather together weekly to celebrate what God has done. He has brought us from death to life. He has promised us that when these bodies die, we will be present with Christ in heaven. He's promised us that when Jesus returns to earth, we will get new bodies and be resurrected from the dead. He's promised us that everything sad is going to be untrue. That is an incredible promise. And so we gather, we, we celebrate it. We sing to the glory of God. We pray to the glory of God. We, we preach about God's glory. We tell one another about what he's doing. We praise him to one another. We exhort one another towards good deeds and love. We remind one another of the vows we have made to God and to one another. We encourage one another just because. We enjoy our relationship with God and one another together. This is perhaps best displayed in our participation in the Lord's Supper where we eat together. We don't, we don't offer fellowship sacrifices, but we do share in a sacrificial meal. There's actually 
a whole lot in common between the fellowship offering and the Lord's Supper. One of the things that we, we realize is the fellowship offering has some requirements with it. Look at verse 18 in chapter 7. If any of the meat of his fellowship sacrifice is eaten on the third day, it will not be accepted. It will not be credited to the one who presents it. It is repulsive. The person who eats any of it will bear his iniquity. Meat that touches anything unclean must not be eaten. It is to be burned. Everyone who is clean may eat any other meat. But the one who eats meat from the Lord's fellowship sacrifice while he is unclean, that person must be cut off from his people. If someone touches anything unclean, whether human uncleanness, an unclean animal, or any unclean, abhorrent creature, and eats meat from the Lord's fellowship sacrifice, that person is to be cut off from his people. And so this is a covenant meal between God and his people. And he requires from them, we haven't got to the cleanliness sections of Leviticus yet, he requires ritual cleanliness from them, a representative holiness, which they live out by obedience to God's commands. And so they gather together. And if they become unclean, then they're not to, to eat this food. That's why it's got to be burned after two days. They're not to touch it, lest they bring judgment upon themselves. Likewise, in the Lord's Supper, we are not to casually partake. Paul gives us a warning in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven. So then, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself. In this way, let him eat the bread and drink from the cup. For whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many of you are sick and ill, and many have fallen asleep. Fallen asleep is a euphemism for died. There's problems in the church at Corinth, and Paul has, uh, typically the wealthy people are not waiting on the poor people to show up and participate in the Lord's Supper together. And he says, it's not what you're, you're not practicing the Lord's Supper when you eat like this. You need to wait for one another. And then he warns. He says, don't partake of this meal in an unworthy manner or judgment will come. This is why some of you are sick and this is why some of you have even died. And he says, well, well, what is this unworthy manner that you could partake of the Lord's Supper in? Well, there's, there's two ways that you could partake of the Lord's Supper unworthily. And the first one would be to take it unrepentantly. The person who does not repent of sin is not in relationship with Jesus. The person who refuses to repent of sin has no share in the fellowship of God's people. You should be a Christian, which means that you've repented of sin and that you are continuing to repent of sin the rest of your life. Luther said the whole of the Christian life is repentance. And so if you refuse to repent or you haven't repented and you're not a Christian, then you take the Lord's Supper, that's an unworthy way to take the Lord's Supper. The second way and the one that's explicit in 1 Corinthians 11, is to do it, Paul says in verse 29, without recognizing the body. And so the question is, well, what does that mean? Well, it certainly means without recognizing the body of Christ, but it also means without recognizing the body of Christ. In 1 Corinthians, this happens at the end of 1 Corinthians 11, and what does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 12? You 
Corinthian church, are the body of Christ. So what is he saying? He's saying, if you partake of the Lord's Supper without recognizing one another as members of the body of Christ, without having the same care and affection for each of these members of the body of Christ, then you're partaking of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. You haven't recognized the body. So there's, just like with the fellowship offering, there is a vertical and a horizontal dimension to the Lord's Supper. We are in fellowship with God and with one another as his church. They're like in this way. They're obviously dissimilar. The fellowship offering and the Lord's Supper are dissimilar in a number of ways also. And I want to point out just one to you because this struck me. Um, turn to verse 17 of chapter 3. All fat belongs to the Lord. This is a permanent statute throughout your generations. Wherever you live, you must not eat any fat or any blood. And the question we go is why? And Leviticus 17.11 tells us, For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have appointed it to you to make atonement on the altar for your lives since it is the lifeblood that makes atonement. Therefore I say to the Israelites, none of you and no alien who resides among you may eat blood. And so you can see that life symbolizes, blood symbolizes life. And that is given to the Lord on behalf of the sinner. And therefore, the people of Israel, God's people, are not to eat or drink blood. Fast forward and look at what Jesus says in John chapter 6, verses 53 through 56. Truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life in yourselves. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, because my flesh is true food. And my blood is true drink. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. What a striking contrast. In the old covenant, the people of Israel are prohibited from eating or drinking blood. And in the new covenant, Jesus says, if you want to have eternal life, you must drink my blood. It's the blood of Christ It gives life. It is Christ who has loved us and given himself for us, who brings us into relationship with himself and with one another. I wonder if that verse might stand out to us as we participate in the Lord's Supper each week. The life of a creature is in the blood. And I've appointed it to you to make atonement on the altar for your lives, since it is the lifeblood that makes atonement. When we take our little vat of grape juice, it represents the blood of Jesus Christ, and that we are drinking that life into ourselves. And we, we have fellowship 
with one another and with God. 1 John 4, 19. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and yet hates his brother or sister, he is a liar. For the person who does not love his brother or sister whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And we have this command from him. The one who loves God must also love his brother and sister. Friends, the Lord's Supper is a covenant fellowship meal between God and his people, wherein we express our love and commitment to Jesus and to one another. Likewise, this fellowship offering is an occasion wherein those in Israel are expressing their love and commitment to God and to one another. And it's not something that they do begrudgingly. Seriously, yes. But also joyfully. God wants his people. He wants us to celebrate our friendship with him and he wants us to do it together. And so we do that weekly when we come to worship King Jesus. We do that weekly when we come together around this table and eat his body and drink his blood. Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And when we turn from our sins and put our faith in him, his death is our death. And his life becomes our life. We become reconciled to God and to one another. And guaranteed a resurrection from the dead and eternal life. And this is good news worth celebrating. Let's celebrate it this morning together as we participate in the Lord's Supper. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to call ourselves your people because you have called us into relationship with yourself. You enabled us to, upon hearing the gospel, exercise faith in Jesus. Lord, we were dead. We were dead in our sins. And yet, for no good reason, nothing good within us, you gave us life. We deserve hell. And you have offered to us relationship with yourself and eternal life. At the cost of God the Son taking on flesh, living a perfect life in our place, dying a substitutionary death in our place, and rising from the dead so that we could have a place in your family. God, we praise you. We thank you for this. We pray soberly and joyfully in the name of Jesus. Amen.